gather together in, in you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all that's been accomplished for us through the cross, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that we've been brought into, through faith in Christ, oneness, unity with you, fellowship with you. And I pray that as we look at your word together, God, we would just um, be humbled at all that you've accomplished on our behalf and the privilege we have of being in relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, 15 years ago, I preached through 1 John. And um, a year ago, or maybe I forget how long, um, Jack Visuette taught on 1 John in the adult Sunday school class and did a great job with that. And I don't normally like to preach through um, a book that I've already um, preached through, but um, 1 John is, is really very foundational in our Christian life. And 15 years, I think, is a long enough span to kind of come back to it. I doubt many of you remember from 15 years ago, if you were here, what I said. I don't remember what I said. So that could have been 15 days ago, and I were two days ago, and I wouldn't remember. But it's a very, very foundational book, and, and it's one that is often on my heart because the main theme of 1 John is fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people. And to be um, very honest and, and a bit self-revealing, um, that's on my heart and mind a lot, and on the good, because um, we typically have wonderful fellowship here in this body as a church and at His Hill with the Bible School. And we especially are aware of that fellowship at the beginning and the end. And so at the beginning, when everybody comes in and we've got a new class of students with us, um, man, it's just sweet. They love each other. Everybody looks clean and sparkly, and everything is good and happy, and, 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 and they're going, wow, we have such unity and such joy, and they're going, never experienced anything like this. And it can sometimes be a little rocky toward the middle, but by the end, they're going, man, this has been wonderful. We, they're crying because they're never going to see each other again, and it's just been wonderful fellowship, and we thank God for that. Fellowship is truly a great gift. But there's the broken fellowship. And um, again, to be a bit self-revealing, I, I don't have, at this point in time, um, good relationship, good fellowship with any of my siblings. And it's very difficult. Breaks my heart. I wish it were other than it is. And I think about it and pray about it a lot. And... Um, and so a book like this helps to keep you honest and not just blame other people when there's broken fellowship, but to have the Spirit of God, have Him have the freedom to look at our own lives and say, is there something I've done, something I need to do um, to address where there is not good fellowship, broken fellowship, and because um, we know it grieves the heart of God. Jesus says in John 17, the entire chapter there is about Jesus' high priestly prayer, sometimes referred to as before he died for our sins, and he's talking to the Father, he's praying, and he, and he says, Father, make them one. It's for this purpose that I came, that they would be as one with each other as I am with you, and you are with me. That's pretty amazing. That is a unity that, that is beyond description. 
and it, it's, the, it's the perfect oneness, the perfect unity, that we, through faith in Christ, would be brought into the very oneness of the Godhead, as one as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, that we can be that one with God himself and with each other. It's remarkable. Um, and it really, it's, it's, I liken it a bit like, like marriage. Um, you know, the wedding day is, is wonderful. And the, the celebration, the, the ceremony itself, the fellowship afterwards, but nobody gets married for the wedding day. The goodness of the wedding, of the marriage, is what starts after the wedding day. The honeymoon starts. And, you know, we make jokes about, well, you know, how long does that last? But the point is, is that Jesus died in order to bring us into a marriage. Not just to celebrate a wedding, but to enter into a marriage. And it's meant to be a honeymoon relationship. Not, again, perfect, because we aren't perfect, but to be a joyful, um, ecstatic experience throughout the course of our lives. Ernest and Stella are celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary this week. That's amazing. And I don't remember exactly what Ernest said when I congratulated him this morning, but it's something <laughs> along the line of, it's gone by really fast. It doesn't seem like it's been that long. And I asked Stella about it. I said, congratulations. And she said, it's just by the grace of God. And uh, <laughs> well, both are true. Both are true. And they are wonderful examples of, of a marriage that is not just remembering a wedding day, but, but living in fellowship and in oneness throughout these 60 years. And so this book is all about fellowship with God and fellowship with our fellow believers. And there are two very profound God is statements that Paul, that Paul, that John makes in this letter. The first is here in verse 5, where he says, God is light. That's the first of two God is statements. And the second is when John's going to say, God is love. Now, that's the, that's the one we like. God is love. You know, you know and, and, and man, it's amazing how we can just make that the focus of everything. And, and God is love. But before Paul, Paul, before John can talk about God is love, he wants to establish that God is light. And there's a reason for that, which we'll get into. But the basic of it is, is that light and truth are synonyms. Because light exposes and should bring us to a point of confession because the light reveals and light is a truth source. So when you really want to get to the truth of a matter, turn the light on, right? You would hope that when you go in for surgery that there's one of those great big lights above the operating table because the point is the doctor needs to see what he's doing. Light brings revelation. It brings knowledge. And so this isn't the love that he's going to talk about is not just the love of good feelings and sentiment, um, being sentimental and romantic, but it's a love that's based on truth. Many times today, Christians are talking about it's all about the love. 
And so they'll evaluate a church based on whether the people feel loved or not when they walk through the doors. Nothing wrong with feeling loved when you walk through the church, when you walk through the doors. But the basis for evaluating a church is not just love. That is one test of whether this is a group of people who are walking and fellowshipping with God. It is a valid test, but it is not the only test. In fact, the greater test than love is truth, because God is light. And that love, if it's not based upon the truth of who God is and His Word, then maybe that love is just a sentimental love. It's just an emotional thing. We like each other a lot. We're nice to each other. But is it really grounded in truth? Truth, the truth test is perhaps the bigger deal than the love test. It is a huge thing. And in this letter here, John begins with a lot of impersonal pronouns for the person of Jesus Christ. And you wonder, does he not know his grammar? You refer to persons with personal pronouns. You refer to impersonal things with impersonal pronouns. But John doesn't seem to know his grammar. So he starts out and he says, what was from the beginning? Not who. What we have heard. Not who. What we have seen with our eyes. What we have beheld with our hands. So four times he uses the word what to make reference to Jesus Christ. And the reason I believe he does this is because he's wanting to show us again that, yes, truth and light and love are a person, Jesus. But the truth that we believe about the person, only by that truth can we be sure that we believe in the right person. Because there is truth about that person. And if what you believe about Jesus is not true to Jesus, it's another Jesus. And so John is very, very, and this is the guy who is the most intimate of any of of the disciples with Jesus. This is the guy who was sitting on Jesus' right hand at the Last Supper and leaning, leaning back against Jesus' chest. This is the beloved disciple. Of the 12 men that could call, say Jesus, they, they followed Jesus as disciples, John was the one that everyone agrees with, had the closest, most intimate relationship with Jesus. And John's calling him a what? That doesn't seem very personal. It is impersonal. But the point is, what you believe about the who is very important. And nobody knew that more than the one who was the most intimate with him. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. What you believe about the who matters. So that's why we have Bible schools. That's why we have church. It's not just to talk about the who of our imagination or the who of our, of our feelings, but it's the what that Scripture says about the who. And then we can see, then we can fellowship together. Because if everybody's got a different definition for Jesus, how can you fellowship? But we have to have a common faith, a common body of knowledge, a common belief about the what, or we're just left to our own imagination, and we find we maybe have 100 people with 100 different views of Jesus and no fellowship, because everybody's got a different Jesus. The what matters. So what we have 
what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. We have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life. And again, the eternal life here is using the impersonal. He's going to say later on in this book, in fact, just flip over there with me. Look at John, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11. And you can see what the eternal life is. 1 John 5, 11, And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So when John says, we, the, what was, the life was manifested to us and we proclaim to you the eternal life. You can't proclaim eternal life without proclaiming Jesus Christ. Because you can't have eternal life apart from Christ. Christ is eternal life. Eternal life is His life. And if you have Christ, you have eternal life. If you have eternal life, it's only because you placed your faith in Christ. So all of this impersonal language here is about the person of Jesus Christ. We proclaim to you the eternal life. You might as well have said we proclaim to you Jesus Christ, which was from the Father, with the Father, and was manifested to us. And which, again, an impersonal pronoun could have just as well said who was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen, the impersonal again, And heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And now fellowship is introduced. Now, there are a number of purpose statements in this epistle. I don't know any epistle that has more times that the author says, I have written this because. And John, 1 John is full of them. But this is the first and the main reason. We have written these things that you that may have fellowship with us. We have, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim that you may have fellowship with us. Fellowship based upon common knowledge, common truth. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So what is Fellowship. I've said I've been thinking on it a lot, and I've not exhausted it. Um, Anytime I have anything that comes close to a profound thought, I just don't know what to do. I just stop thinking, because I don't know where did that come from. And so I I have not been original here, but um, there are a couple things that have come to mind. And and, in helping me to understand, get a handle maybe on what fellowship is. Some of this is just intuitive. We don't really need to talk about it. You just understand, you know. We know that friendship and fellowship go hand in hand. So when you've got a really close friend, you're you're fellowshipping with that person. When there's good fellowship, there's trust. You can trust that person. You feel safe with that person. There's goodwill toward that person. You enjoy each other. You respect and appreciate each other. All of those things go into fellowship. But if you look with me, just keep your finger here and go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is an interesting passage because there are a number of words here that seem to be used as as synonyms of fellowship. Another way to put it is there's there's a diamond 
that, that scripture is trying to describe. And that's the diamond that I referred to in John 17, the diamond of oneness with God and oneness with each other, or the diamond. And a diamond has, every diamond has more than one facet to it. It's loaded with different facets, okay? Each of those angles, each of those cuts is a different facet to the same diamond. Well, one facet to the diamond of unity is fellowship. If there wasn't unity, there wouldn't be fellowship. You cannot have fellowship apart from unity. Okay, so unity comes before fellowship. Fellowship is just one of the aspects, one of the facets to the diamond of unity. Well, there are some other facets as well, and they're very, very similar in all part of unity. So look at John, 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers... Okay, that's the first statement, negative statement. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Why? Because there's no oneness. Now he's going to give some different words that are facets of oneness. For what, here's the first word, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Second word, what fellowship has light with darkness? Third word, what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer, fourth word, in common with an unbeliever? And the fifth word, verse 16, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? That's a pretty amazing passage. So the word that's behind all five of those words is oneness, unity. And these five words are facets to that diamond. So again, they are partnership, harmony, commonality, agreement fellowship. Five different facets. And if we look at them together, it kind of helps us to get a handle on what fellowship is about. It's not identical to partnership, but it's very, very similar. It's not identical to commonality, but it's very similar. All of these words touch each other and are facets of unity. So when you have true oneness with a person, and that oneness is being expressed, it's expressing itself in partnership, in fellowship, in harmony, in, in agreement, all of these things are part of fellowship. And when there's broken fellowship, we don't see these things being manifest. Partnership, we don't even use that word much anymore. I remember many, many years ago, I, I made an elk hunting trip to Colorado. And the guy that I was hunting with, 10 years my senior, he was at the time the director at, at his hill, invited me to go on an elk hunting trip with him, and man, I jumped at that. <laughs> 10 days of backpacking in the mountains of Colorado, and um, it was quite the adventure. I have so many stories about those 10 days, um, and I won't go into all that. I mean, my dad's already laughing. He knows some of those stories. And it was quite the experience. But one of the things that I got out of that that I so appreciated is this, the, the experienced hunter, the director of his hill that I was with, every place we went, he called me his partner, kind of like a Louis L'Amour book. Here's, here's my partner, you know, and, um, and I appreciated that. His partner spoke of companion, of, of friendship, that you're, that you're bound together in this. That's what unity does. Of harmony, there's consistency. There's no discord. Opposite of harmony is discord. And there's no dissonance here. There, there's just, there's, there, it works. It, it, put, it flows together. 
of commonality. I mean, this is a powerful statement Paul says. He says, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And the answer is, as much as Satan and Jesus have in common. Nothing. Nothing. But when you receive Christ, you have everything in common with another believer because what you have in common is Christ. And so you may not have the same background, the same education. Everything surface could be different. And I mean everything. You don't like the same food. You don't enjoy the same books, the same movies, the same activities. And you don't, there's nothing about you that is the same as that other person. But that's the best friend you have in the world. How can that be? Because what you have in common is Jesus. See, this is why it's, it's around Christ that there is true unity and only around Christ and in Christ is there true unity. Because that unity crosses all prejudice, all racism, all economic language and, and, and educational barriers. Because you've got Jesus in common. And if you've ever made a mission trip to another country where you don't even speak the language and you spend the whole time with believers during that, you go, man alive. How many times we've heard people come back from those trips and says, I've never experienced such great fellowship in my life and I couldn't even understand the language. And it's because of the commonality of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing we have in common. And there's nothing more we need when we have Christ in common. And when you don't have Christ in common, you have nothing in common. Agreement. How can two walk together, Scripture says, unless they be agreed? And so when there's broken fellowship, often it's because there's disagreement over something. We've had, and I'm going to get into this later and some of the things I want to say, there are people that come and go in in every church. I heard one person say one time that every pastor should view himself as a bus driver. And that there are people that are always getting on the bus and getting off the bus. So don't take it personally. And that's honestly helped me. Because people are always coming and going. Don't take it personally. But sometimes people leave because they've moved. Sometimes people leave because they aren't happy. And that unhappiness can be because there is a disagreement. A doctrinal disagreement. Or just an emphasis disagreement. And so then you have to work through that. Personally, I have to work through that, and sometimes interpersonally with the other person. And so this is a fair, fairly small town, as rapidly as it's growing. And, and I'm always, I don't spend a lot of time here in Bernie, but um, the, from time to time when I am here, I'll bump into a former church member. Or if we have a wedding or some other gathering, there'll be former church members that, that reappear. And I have been happy that in almost every instance there's been no strain. And that's a good thing. And there's been enough maturity on the part of those who left that says, you know, I don't necessarily agree with Charlie, but it's not heresy. And so there's a disagreement, but we can disagree because this is not an essential thing. It's just not something I want to necessarily identify with where Charlie's at. But he's still my brother, and we see each other, we can hug each other and carry on because there's not a personal problem between us. 
And that's not a bad thing. There ought to be the agreement that the main thing is what we believe concerning Jesus. Not just the main thing is Jesus, but what do you believe concerning Jesus? As John is saying, the what matters. That's the main thing. So all of these things help me here in 2 Corinthians 6 to get a little bit better handle on what fellowship is and what a gift it is. Treasure. You don't throw treasures away. You don't lightly esteem treasures. And when the treasure is lost, it should break our hearts. It really should. When there's broken fellowship, when there's something that's come up where we don't have what we used to have or don't have what we should have, it really should grieve us. Just for no other reason because we don't want to lose our treasure. And this is such a treasure that God has given us, fellowship. Now, what it ha- so the goal of the Christian life, I think we could say that, that John is proclaiming, is fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers. This is what we have been saved for, to have fellowship with God and to have fellowship with one another. Yes, the ultimate goal is to glorify God, but God is glorified in unity. God is glorified through fellowship, okay? And so, it, because God's made us one in Christ, and it glorifies Him when we are functioning together as one in fellowship with each other. It pleases God. So what are the keys to fellowship? And he gives two here in this passage. So this is, so he says, um, going back to verse 3, what we have heard and seen, seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with, with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So first key to fellowship with each other and with God, you have to receive Christ. You have to believe what is true concerning Christ and accept that. That's the foundation, faith in Jesus Christ. The what matters. Do you accept what Scripture says concerning Jesus? Have you received that truth as your own? Faith in Christ is the first foundation, the the basic thing to fellowship. And then he says... Coming down further, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is not a key to fellowship, but this is an aspect. When we're fellowshipping together, gives great joy. Jesus said that again in John 17. Father, I want them to know our joy. May my joy, our joy, be in them. This fellowship brings joy. And one of the ways that you can know that fellowship is broken, you don't have any joy when you see that person anymore, Right? I mean, you may, it, 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 you may still be in a relationship, but you don't like each other anymore. There's no joy in seeing each other. That person walks through the door and you haven't seen him in a long time. Oh my, here we go. And there's no joy. That is an indication of broken fellowship. When there is fellowship, as God has intended it to be, it always comes with joy, mutual joy. 
Verse 5, and this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what's the second key to fellowship? The first is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the second, walk in the light. I have no control over whether anyone else walks in the light or not. All I have control over is whether I'm walking in the light or not. And honestly... That's a big thing. Simple, but big. Because I've received a lot of light. (laughs) And so have you. And there's a lot of light to walk in. And that means when you've had light, truth revealed to you, you don't turn away from it. You walk in what you know to be true. That's a big order. Walk in what you know to be true. That means you don't willingly, willfully embrace sin. There's no sin in God. When it says there is no darkness in him, John's saying there's no deceit. That's true. There's, but the main thing is there is no sin in him. And when I am willingly willfully embracing what I know is sin. I am walking in darkness. I am not walking in light. God has shown me this is sin. And I am still doing it. I'm walking in darkness, not in light. And so my fellowship with God is at that moment broken. Not my relationship with him. I'm still saved. See, this is not a book about salvation and how to get saved and whether or not you're saved. This is a book about fellowship. John never questions these people's salvation. He does challenge challenge them, exhort them concerning their fellowship with Christ, not their salvation. So it is possible, very possible, to be a Christian to have a personal living relationship with God and not be in fellowship with him. If you're walking in the darkness, do not be deceived. In fact, John's saying, you're a liar. We lie if we say that we are walking in the darkness and fellowship with God. That is a lie. And see, that's one of the interesting things about God being love and God being light It is not a contradiction to either. To lovingly say to your brother, as you would want him to say to you, don't lie. If you have willful, open sin in your life that God has put his finger on it, and you're not calling it what God calls it, don't lie. You are not in fellowship with God. I would never say that person is not a Christian. But I can say he is lying when he tells me 
he is in fellowship with God. Because you can't have fellowship with God when you're living in sin any more than light and darkness can have fellowship with each other. And God is light and sin is darkness. Don't claim fellowship when you're embracing sin. It's not complicated. So we must walk in the light to have fellowship with God. We must walk in the light to have fellowship with each other. This is where broken fellowship is not always something that we personally have caused or can do anything to fix. Because it takes two people walking in the light to have fellowship, right? If you're walking in the light and I'm not walking in the light, no fellowship. We can still get along. We can still be kind and friendly with each other. But there is no true fellowship. See, we, we minimize the significance of fellowship when we act as though we can still have fellowship when one of us is living in sin. That is a lie. There is no true fellowship unless both are walking in the light that they've received. And I, again, it's not our business to convict other people, to condemn other people. It's God's business to show the light by the light of his word to show a person where the sin is. And if God hasn't done that, it's not my business to do that. It's God's business. But when God has done that, and he says, this is sin, and we try to soften or even silence the voice of God. See, that's what happens. We can have, at one point, a common agreement about what sin is. Remember, commonality, agreement. And you can have Christians in, within, the, within a, a biological family, Christians outside a biological family, but they had 100% agreement on what sin is, as God has shown them. And then one of them makes a choice which contradicts what they in the past professed to be sin. The other one hasn't changed. But the one person said, I'm not so sure this is sin anymore. I've changed my position. And now there's not agreement. Now there's not commonality. Now there's not fellowship. The what that we believe is the basis for fellowship. And how can two walk together unless they be agreed? There is, this is why it's so important that, how, that we define sin as Scripture defines it. We define darkness as God defines it because we're living in a world where everything's being redefined. Am I right? Everything's being redefined. And Christians are going along with the definitions. And so, well, you know, and we're, just, we're buying into all these redefinitions. And then you wonder, where has the fellowship gone? We've all agreed to disagree even, but there's no fellowship. Because there's nothing common anymore. 
If you're a Christian, you can have broken fellowship or a lack of fellowship with God and other believers. If you're a Christian and are not in fellowship with God and other believers, the reason, more than anything else, is someone is not walking in the light. Walking in darkness is to walk in sin. Walking in darkness is to walk according to the flesh. Walking in darkness is to not walk with God. The reason for a failure on the horizontal level of relationships is a failure in the vertical. That is the primary reason. It's not because of what that other person has done necessarily. That factors in. But this is the big thing John's after here. This is where he wants us to be honest and not be self-deceived. If there is broken fellowship with a believer, the primary reason is not what that other person has done or what you have done in relation to that person. The primary reason is what has happened between me and God, you and God. It is vertical, first and foremost, and then horizontal. We can do things, I'm just reading some thoughts here. We can do things against others that cause a break in fellowship. Amen, and we all do. But if what we did was sin, then it goes back to my relationship with God, for all sin is first and foremost against God. This is why David, with a sin of adultery and murder, he wrote in one of the Psalms, Father, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, he had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against his family and against the nation. But he had to face the truth that it all started with his relationship with God. And sin is primarily Godward. And secondarily, horizontal. Peopleward. It is primarily against God. And that is something I can address. And this chapter later says, confess your sin. Confess your sin. And he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we can do things against others that cause a break in fellowship. My sin against another person is first and foremost sin against God. And I need not only to get it right with that person, I need to get first right with God. But we can... Create an offense with another person that has nothing to do with that offense being inherently sinful. Paul gives a couple of examples. Exercising your Christian liberty. And I can do so and cause offense. It was not sinful in itself for me to exercise my Christian liberty. But it can become sin when I have trampled over the conscience of another brother. But the act itself was not sin. I can create an offense by just acting ignorantly of the culture that I'm living in. And every culture has these. Every culture does. We're, We're not aware of it as Americans living in South Texas so much. But as soon as we go out of our culture, we realize, man, I messed up. I didn't know that this you know, it was this way or that way. And, 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 and so we, we can 
create an offense which can actually result in broken relationship over something that was not in itself sinful. I just, in ignorance, violated a cultural expectation. When those things happen, a horizontal break in relationship that's based upon um, exercising a liberty in a way that I shouldn't have or being ignorant of a cultural value, I can fix those things. I wish it was all that easy. Because you can just go and say, man, forgive me. I shouldn't have done that. I didn't know that was the cultural expectation. I didn't realize that you had a weak conscience in this area. I shouldn't have exercised my liberty. Please forgive me. Those things ought to be easy to fix. In Matthew, Jesus says, if you're at the altar offering your, your offerings and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering and go to your brother and get it right. Now let me tell you about that. Because again, as I've said, I've got brothers and the relationship isn't great. And that verse has come up more than a few times. What Jesus is talking about there, if your brother has something against you, is that you have actually done something wrong to him. Get it right. Apologize. Seek forgiveness. But if the offense is because nothing you've done to him, but the offense is because of what you believe. There's nothing to apologize for. And see, this is how can two walk together unless they be agreed. And the what that you believe is the basis for fellowship. And when you've got two brothers that believe two different things, and I'm talking about just brothers in Christ, you can't have fellowship. And it's not about sin. It's about an unwillingness to agree. That is nothing, nothing to apologize for. You don't have to repent of what you believe unless what you believe is heretical. Then repent of it. But if your belief is rooted in Scripture, and you may have two brothers who, who believe, they both believe what Scripture says. Well, they need to deal with this and, and come together and talk through that. And it shouldn't have to become a thing that ruins the relationship. But if it does, you can't fix it. Because the scripture doesn't say change everything you believe and so as to make your brother happy. We have to, in good conscience, believe what we believe scripture is saying. And sometimes that's going to result in broken fellowship. Our sin is our responsibility, no one else's. We can never blame others for our sin. We must walk in the light with God, who is light. We must encourage the same with others. The fix to broken relationship, to fix to broken fellowship, is almost always spiritual first, though not exclusively. It does no good to try and fix a relationship horizontally when the vertical remains unchanged. And I just looked at the clock and see that it's already noon, 
And man, there's potluck back there waiting for us. There is so much here. I'll just take a minute and pray. Broken fellowship. This is a very, very important point. Broken fellowship with God should not equate with severed relationship. When we sin, it breaks the relationship, it breaks the fellowship with God. You don't lose your salvation. The relationship is there. The fellowship has been broken. That's the way it ought to be between Christians. When there is sin, when a Christian is walking in darkness, it ought to break fellowship. It ought to break fellowship. It should not break relationship. Now, how we work that out, we're going to spend the rest of our lives figuring that out. And no two relationships are going to be the same. But the theological here has to be the basis for the, hor- the, 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 the interpersonal. The vertical is the basis for the horizontal. My relationship with God is never in question because of sin. Jesus paid for my sin. My fellowship with God is in question. And the same thing ought to be true with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It ought to break fellowship. Something is wrong when sin does not cause Christians to break fellowship. But it should never sever the relationship any more than it severs our relationship with God. And with that, I'll pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your desire not just to pay for our sin, as monumental as that was. But your ultimate desire was to bring us into oneness and fellowship with yourself. Incredible. Beyond miraculous. That you would do it, that you would accomplish it, but even that you would want it. And I pray that our hearts would want what you want. That our one master ambition, the greatest love and passion that we would ever have, would be to live in touch with you. And from that, to be right with each other as we are right with you. And Lord, it's a subject that we'll never fully understand until we're with you. But I do pray that as you are toward us, we would be toward one another. There needs to be a broken fellowship where there is sin. What that looks like, God, we need to be informed and guided by you. I pray there would never be broken relationship because our relationship with you is not severed when we sin and we thank you for that. We need your grace and your wisdom. We need to walk in light and in love. And God, we pray that one would never be to to the neglect of the other. In Jesus' name, amen.